Hey everyone, Jet Johnson here. I'm strongly encouraging all of you to head on to the Napa Motorsport Academy. Go sign up there now. They've got some really great content on there to help you push your racing to the next level. But now there's even more of a reason you should sign up. You can win the opportunity of a lifetime to head over to Charlotte and watch Chase Elliott race there in a really, really awesome experience. The Napa Know How Motorsport Academy is back, bigger than ever. The Academy offers tuition to all racers aged 13 and up, giving insights into the world of racecraft and analysis, plus information on health, sponsorship and media. On top of the information you'll receive, you can win regular prizes and best of all, it's free to join. Get involved at the new Napa Motorsport Asia Pacific Facebook and Instagram pages or visit the Napa Australia or New Zealand websites to sign up and be part of know-how that is synonymous with Napa. Start your engines. This is the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racer Podcast. Well, happy days, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to episode 22 of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. The Napa Motorsport Know-How Academy is a free service to help improve your grassroots racing, fitness, diet, mental well-being, press and media, social media strategies, and much, much more. Of course, Grant Rowley is very, very involved in the media side of things with the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. So he casts his mind right across there. Check it all out at www.napaparts.com.au for all of the Napa know-how. A big welcome to episode number 22, and please stand by for best wishes for my co-host. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, GGOB. Happy birthday to you. Welcome to episode 22, Gaz. Who knew? Thanks, mate. Uh, I don't often get birthday messages sung to me, but I'll take it. Well, now I've just done it in public and everyone can listen to it for eternity if they must. They can start the kids' birthday parties by playing uh, that rendition of Happy Birthday. What do yeah, you know? Don't give up your day job, though, will you? No. <laughs> they say that at my day job. <laughs> um, let's jump straight into it. Essentially, our guest today was born into a motorsport family, but we'll let him talk more on that. The chassis manufacturing company bearing his name was formed in about 1984, and I'm sure he'll pick me up on that too, for the Australian Formula 2 Championship, of which four titles were achieved. Our guest then started producing Spectrum Formula Fords and Sabre Formula V racing cars. Let's take a deep dive into the into the one of the Australian motorsport's hardest working individuals, and welcome to the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast, Mike Borland. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Awesome to have you, Mike. It's um, we, you know, we've got a long list of people that we we wanted to get on this podcast, and uh, getting a constructor on. We've had we've had, of course, um, Ryan McLeod on uh, constructing the Mark cars. But uh, as far as racing cars are concerned, let's have the you know we've just had the Australian Grand Prix, and we've had three international open wheeler categories, and racing cars without mudguards on them are right back up in the the top of everyone's uh, list of things to do, aren't they? Yeah, certainly the, uh, the there's a lot more interest in the open wheeler racing at the moment. Obviously, the Netflix things generated a fair bit of interest in F1, and uh, we seem to have a lot more Australian kids looking at heading overseas to get onto the pathway to Formula One or or Indy cars. So it's great. Obviously, we'll touch on many of those that you've um, worked with throughout uh, our our chat here 
today. Um, our first question, basically, to anyone that joins us on the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast is, what's your first memory? You didn't always squint at the screen and have not so much hair on the top of your head these days. Mike, you obviously had uh, heady heights in, in motorsport, but what's your first and fondest, let's say, memory of being involved in motorsport? I think my first memories were at Calder Park, and I've actually got a photo of my brother and sister and I out at Calder Park watching my uncle Brian Sheed race, and I remember it snowing out there that day, so he was running his Formula 3 car. Uh, yeah, so that that would be uh, early 70s, late 60s, I would have thought, early 70s, something, something around that by looking at the size of me in the photo. So you, you, seriously, it was snowing at Calder? Yes. Yep. Been there when it snowed. Wow. I've been there when it, when you think it's going to snow and, and sleep, but uh, certainly actual snow on the ground is... Uh, well, well is probably sleep. Probably sleep, but yeah, when yeah. you yeah. snow. Was your attention on the car racing or like a lot of kids? I remember Oren Park, they'd, they'd get up on the side of the hill with the cardboard boxes and slide down after watching a little bit of racing. They get a little bit bored by it, but was your attention always just focused on... What was going on on track? Yeah, I just loved it from the from the very beginning. Um, so probably even before that, my grandfather had raced powerboats. So there was a little bit of interest in looking at all the photos and all of that from the, from, you know, he wrote the offshore powerboat racing. So that sort of got the, the, the juices flowing, I suppose, for speed. And you know, we used to go down to my grandparents' place where, Brian Sheed had his garage at the back of their house and every week for dinner and you know, I get to go and look at the racing cars every week. So it really just, um, you know, just caught the bug really early on. So was Brian, I mean, I know Brian as the track inspector from the Adelaide Grand Prix and the early uh, Grand Prix here in Melbourne. He used to ride off in his little nifty 50 motorbike and, check the the circuit in you know in front of all of the you know Roland Brunseray and all of these uh John Korschmidt and all of these international stewards and and basically Brian was the the Aussie that would lead the way with all of his engineering and racing experience to uh to do that but that was you know that was later on in in Brian's career did you follow his career avidly as the nephew of or did you it was just a passing thing. Like you said, you go to his house and see the racing cars. Or did you work with him on the the brand and the, the cars that he used to build? I never worked with him on them. He was very, very much, he did everything himself, but absolutely followed him. And I've still got scrapbooks that I'd made when I was a kid from Auto Action and Racing Car News and whatever you could find, articles on the cheaters and articles on Brian. Um, so, so, yeah, I was just sort of, followed that. I think the only time that I really did any work at his place was the first Formula Holden. I think when they it had been damaged in a testing accident and he was really under the pump. So I went and helped him sort of do a little bit of work then to get ready for the first race. Um, but he was, yeah, not a lot of, um, he didn't let many people in to help. So spent a lot of time. I'd ride my bike down there Lots of times when I was a kid with all different designs that I'd just come up with and we'd sit down and um, he'd go through all the different bits and pieces with that and help me with billy carts and go-karts, but yeah, never really worked for him there. 
When you said you went down to Uncle Brian's to work, I thought he might have got the lawnmower out and said, I've got stuff to do. Off you go, Mike. Go and mow the lawns for it. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite that bad. So I, I guess from an early age and when we, you know, in the fullness of time, you've become a designer and a constructor yourself. Was this, you know, you could quite easily say Brian was heavy influence on you, but was he? Was he an influence in, in where you took yourself in your career? Uh, absolutely. I mean, he was uh, he was a diesel mechanic, worked on earth moving equipment, and he helped me get a, an apprenticeship. And that's that's actually my qualification. I'm a diesel mechanic on earth moving equipment. So because it that uh, taught you a lot about how to do things mechanically properly on when you're fixing big machines and things. And then the for him it was. Um, learned of him simplicity you know it's harder to make things simple and effective than it is to make things complicated and that was you know one of the one of the big lessons I learned off him and um, just just small volume manufacturing and simplicity were the big things. Was it was it an enjoyable thing um you know, I cast I cast my memory back to Brian. I, I knew him as a fifteen-year-old at the Adelaide Grand Prix when my father was working with him. You know, at the Grand Prix and all that sort of thing. And Brian was always um, quite reserved in conversation, but if he had something to say, he'd pipe up and 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 say it. You know, there was guys like Bob Barnard in the room. You know, the designer of the Formula One track over there in Adelaide and revived Phillip Island and all those sorts of things. And Every now and again, Brian would just pipe up and say, no, that's not going to work. you you, you got to bring it, as you just said, you've got to bring it back to first principles and, and keep it as simple as you can. Yeah, I think he was really highly respected in that area, that's for sure. So, I mean, he spent a lot of time in his later years travelling around the world, going to the FIA, to the um, track safety commissions and um, spent a lot of time at overseas circuits um, in Asia and that on their track safety as well. So let's cast our minds forward away from the, the shed at Uncle Brian's and to a young Mike that wanted to start his own engineering works and 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 build race cars and be a constructor and design and all that sort of thing. Along the way, has there ever been a time where you've said, you know what, I'm going to be a race car driver, like Uncle Brian did? Uh well, I always was. I raced carts for a while, but I realised pretty early on I wasn't going to make a living out of it because I wasn't that good. So, uh, you know, if I want to stay in motor racing, it's not going to be as a driver, that's for sure. So it was sort of time to um, move move slightly in, uh, over to the engineering or the, or the manufacturing side of it. So, and, uh, and I, you know, it was probably 50-50. I liked driving as much as I did working on the, cars or carts or whatever um but um you know i think i've just i still have absolute passion to work on the cars i just love working on the cars now and um sort of um so the driving dropped away pretty quickly really how, how did you manage to to sort of move into okay you want to do your own design and build your own cars but then you've got to have the financial backing, you've got to set up a garage, do all that stuff. How did that sort of start? Uh, well, I'd been running the Cheetah Formula 2 cars for a few years, so we had a um, had a workshop in Brayside, uh, and then it was really just poured all of our money into building the Formula Ford, and lucky I met a 
girl that was then, you know, my wife now, who was silly enough to come along for the ride sort of thing. So really lived off her wage for a fair, fair few years before the business got up and going. Did that that Formula Two era that you, you said you were talking about with the cheaters, the the drivers and the behind the scenes, the mechanics and people that you worked with there, how influential and who were the, I guess, the main people that influenced you out of that Formula Two scene? Because in in that era, Formula Two was was a pretty big deal. It was it was probably bigger than what the main open wheeler category was. Let's call it the gold star at the time. Yeah, I think. I mean, I ran um, Peter Glover for two years, John Crook for 18 months and Rowan Onslow for about 18 months. Um, so, and then it, then Formula 2 sort of stopped a little bit and got taken over by Formula Holden. And I, uh, um, so, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a really good, I mean, a fantastic times back then. I mean, we'd all, stay at the track pretty much we all had caravans or sleep in the trailers or motorhomes or whatever so it was a really really good environment um you go out for dinner and come back and do a few laps around the track on a, after you got back to the track after dinner and <laughs> a few things you can't do anymore which is a shame uh, <laughs> but uh but yeah that was that was a that were really good times really good environment um you know and back then i was only just starting to learn about engineering the cars because the the mark 8 cheetah that cheetah had built was just just an unbelievable car um have to be the best racing car built in australia so in my opinion so um you didn't really have to do much to those cars for them to win races um so and that's sort of building my own formula ford at about the same time starting to it was all just a real big learning curve from me for me from there on Obviously, with Formula 2, then the progression to Formula Ford, was that just because, as you said, Formula 2 was coming to an end and you needed to look elsewhere or were you doing something on parallel lines at the time? Uh, well, I, was, I didn't think I'd be able to compete in Formula 2 to build a Formula 2 car against Brian and he wasn't doing a... Uh, wasn't doing any space frame cars anymore. So the Formula Ford was sort of the logical thing, really. And there was a lot more of them, I suppose. And it was sort of more of an international um, market in some ways that you could compare yourself against. So um, that's why I sort of headed down that route. To actually come up with something that you think was, and and as it proved, it did. But how, how do you, you look at what everyone else is doing around the world and then you think you can build a better car. So what do you look at to make a Formula Ford a better car with what you've got than what everyone else is bringing in? Uh, it's sort of been the same basics for me the whole way along. It's the a stiff chassis and, and as low a centre of gravity as you can. And the, the suspension geometry was, you, you sort of work away at that, but that, you know, got a lot of advice from Brian to start with, with, with that part of it, which is sort of still holds us in good stead now. I mean, the cars now, we're running them on a Yokohama road tyre here in Australia. They run on a Hoosier Slick radial in America. They run on a Avon Crossply in England. So the cars are sort of pretty competitive on everything. So it's coming up with a geometry that sort of suits a lot of different 
circumstances without having to do massive changes to the car. Um, and that was Brian was always really helpful with that part of it in the beginning. Mike, when you when you started out and you were you're going to be building your first Formula Ford, were you sitting at a draftsman's table or was there CAD type design available then, or were you were you just rough sketching things and then working them out as they go? Is there a library of Mike Ball and etchings that uh, yeah. um, you know will, will appear uh, at some stage in the future as some some sort of great masterpieces of art? Uh, I don't know about masterpiece of art, but yeah, I've got a lot of the sketches still. The the actual the suspension geometry, I had a eight foot by four foot piece of chipboard that I do try to do as big a scale drawings of the suspension geometry as you can, or as I could back then. Um, all the uprights and everything, yeah, they're all done on a drawing board. Uh, you know, I mean. <laughs> As good as CAD is, I miss not be doing drawing board stuff. I walk upstairs, I've still got my original drawing board upstairs and I look at it and think, oh, that was so good, fun doing that, but slow ass. But anyway. Yeah, so is the, the, the evolution away from that drawing board and, and what you've just said is is often what um, designers, manufacturers will say there was... Um, you know, even Jack Brabham, they, 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 everything they did was on was on blueprints and paper and and all of that sort of thing. And with the advent of computer aided design, etc., they go, you know what? It'd be nice just to do a drawing of this instead of um, clicking away on a mouse on a screen with with the the computer helping you you think along there. So you miss that aspect. Yeah, well, in in fact, I mean, about every year I say to myself, I'm going to teach myself how to do CAD drawings because I've always had kids that come in and do that part of it and, and I spend a few mornings doing it and then I get busy with something else and then, you know, a year later I've forgotten everything I tried to teach myself and I'll come back to it again. <laughs> so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the stuff is just carry over parts on the Formula Ford anyway, so there's not a lot of new, not massive amount of new designs. So, um, but, but, yeah, nowadays I get a, I have uni students or or kids come in and do the drawings for me and I just sort of sketch it out and this is about what I want and they go off and do it all. And, and they're the same kids it. that look after your Facebook and your Instagram accounts as well, are they? Oh, yeah, you've noticed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just just on on that that um, aspect of it with your, your workshops, which is a decent-sized workshop, you're, um, you've always had one or two people in there, fabricators, different people coming into and out of the business as models, you know, you, you roll out or they, you, know, so you get an order for some cars. It, has the challenge to keep the doors open of the workshops ever got a little bit much and you've gone, wow, Trace, we're probably staring down the barrel here of not such a great year? Yeah, we've <clears throat> probably not for a while, but it um, certainly to, to start with in the early 90s when we probably were, were running, when we came out with the 05, which was really our first production car. Um, and that was that was hard work sort of thing. But, you know, so, I mean, that's, for me, my passions got paid for by Tracy's wage for years and years sort of thing. And, you know, it's, it's sort of, now obviously she works in the business, so it's sort of paying its way now. But, yeah, there was a lot of years where it was a big struggle, that's for sure. Um, but... You mentioned um, the the design, etc. There was a, a big change as far as Formula Ford, and I guess the 
the the biggest change, but you might correct me on this, was the change from the Kent engine to the the Duratec engine. How did that, when that rule was coming through, how did that change your thinking when when you went to put that engine in in your chassis? Uh, not a lot. Uh, it was only twenty five horsepower more, and we stayed on the same tire, so it wasn't a big, really wasn't that big a change, and we'd had a. Uh, apart from the fact that we, the la oh, with the Kent engines, there was always a uh, grey area in the rules which we had used for years and years and years. So it made us we had to sort of, which was came down to the diameter of the flywheel that you could use. So we had a smaller diameter flywheel than most other people. Um, so when we went to the Duratec, we had to it was a spec flywheel, so we sort of had to lift all of that weight up in the car so um it was a little bit of work to do with that but uh, it wasn't that big a deal really so so the design was again as you touched on before an evolution rather than revolutionary design changes for for the spectrum chassis yeah it was just an evolution i think we used the same side pods and everything was just taller because the manifold was in a different spot to the carburetor and, and it was a lot taller so around the shoulders of the driver where it was it was a lot bigger, but we actually used the same uh, same front suspension geometry, same uprights, same rear uprights, and and a lot of that stuff was the was the same same bits and pieces. So, I mean, we some of the parts on the car. I still make them now, and 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 I make them on my NC machine now. And I think back to like front axles and rear axles. They're the same part that we had on the 05 in 1993 hmm. so um they now i can make them on a machine in about a tenth of the time it sort of makes you uh, so so there's not that much that's um it's not that big a change from model to model was the um suspension geometry change a lot with the change of engine and weight was the other thing i was thinking of um from the older engine to the newer one yeah, the weight wasn't a big difference because there was obviously the base engine's lighter, but there was a lot more fuel pumps and bits and pieces that came along with it. So it wasn't a real big change in engine weight. Um, the um, the geometry it, it changed a changed a little bit, but not a not a huge amount. Probably because we we're on the same tire, it didn't seem to make a big difference. And and the second year of Durotex, we went from five and a half inch rims to six and seven inch rims. And that um, that made a sort of a balance change to the cars that sort of possibly moved them in our favour a little bit, but um, not uh, the rest of it, sort of the, the shock absorbers are a constant, constantly evolving with the shock absorbers. We've sort of worked with Penske for, uh, must be, since 1993 so 30 years now we've been using Penske and they build a shock especially for us have done for years so that's sort of a that's a constant evolution but the geometry not a huge amount jumping from the the spectrum formula Fords that you build to I guess the other side of the workshop or the the, the back of the workshop where the formula V's come out of the same the sabers come out of there's tell us how many spectrums versus sabers are there out there have you built more formula fords or have you built more formula v's yeah i think we've built 45 v's and over two models 
and we're up to 161, I think, 160 plus Formula Fords now. It's uh, Australia's most prolific car manufacturer these days, Gaz. Yeah, without doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the Formula Vs, how, how did that come about? Was that something that someone came to you and said, hey, if you're making Formula Fords, how about give us a new chassis for V racing? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, I think the... the I think the um, Elfin Crusader, they'd stopped making them and someone came and said, oh, could you do a version of this for me? Like, And that's how the first ones were. We called it a save. It strengthened the chassis up a bit and changed a few few bits and pieces, but it was sort of realistically it was a copy of uh, Elfin Crusader, the first, first V, and then we hadn't really done much with the Vs and then oh, it must be 12, 10, 12 years ago I had a... Um, engineer that was working for me that had raced in V and raced in Formula Ford and we sort of spoke about it and he came up with uh, um, Terry Kerr who's now at Walkinshaws as an engineer at Walkinshaws um, so he he came up with the concept and we sort of threw together a prototype V to see how it worked and it went pretty well um, so then I sort of productionized that to make it um, sort of a bit easier to make and a bit easier to work on and that was the Sabre 02 so that's um yeah that's been been pretty reasonable car so the um I mean Australia seems to be you know doing pretty well in Formula V construction because your your biggest rivals I guess if you want to call them rivals are the Jaser and the Stinger and um you all had a fair share of victories regardless of uh, the chassis yeah, that's right. I mean, the Jaser was when we did the Sabre O two. The Jaser was the absolutely the the um, the benchmark car. So, um, and it's sort of funny. It's we at national level. It's been it sort of goes depending on who's driving them. But at <laughs> state level, we have saturation because I'm here and the guys that sort of run our cars in a team mainly there in Victoria, but in New South Wales, it's Jaser country sort of thing. So, um, depends where you live. <laughs> Yeah, and then when you get to Western Australia or somewhere like that, they seen 50-50 over there, yeah. and the results seem to reflect the same. Yep, yep. Again, depending on drivers. Yeah, and the, the, with the V, we've sort of, we haven't really done any development. We've done no development in the last 10, 12 years since we built the car realistically. So because it's Formula V and you don't want to keep on, in Victoria, our market here, they're, winning they've won the state series whatever 10 times in a row or something so it to me it's formula v and you don't want to spend make everyone spend two thousand dollars oh, i found this new piece and then they'll have to go out and buy it it's not really what it's about sort of thing it's not a dollar, it's not a dollar category is what, what you're saying yeah that's right and even formula ford to a degree i mean it's it's really it's not so much an engineer's category it's a driver's learning category so you do have to be careful how um, how expensive you make it or how complicated you make things so that the drivers, but you just really formula forwards about getting kids as many miles as they can, as cheap as they can, in my opinion. So trying to get them to learn as much as they can. So try not to complicate the things so much. Mike, t- just touching on, you mentioned um, Terry Kerr. You could quite easily walk down the pit lane of just about anywhere anywhere in the world. I'm going to say particularly our upper echelon. It happens to be touring cars. And you could 
you could point to people in the garages and and say, oh, I remember when he walked through the door at Brayside. I remember when he walked through the door at Brayside. I remember this bloke when he walked through the door at Brayside. How many people, and, and just touching on these engineers and mechanics and the people behind the scenes have actually worked with you on your Vs and your Formula Fords and, and even, you know, in more recent times on things like Chris Lambin's Swift and different projects of restoration. You know, you walk down any, let's call it the upper echelon of Australian motorsport pit lane, how many people there have, have been working with Mike Orland? Uh, well, there's a few, I suppose. Wes McDougall, he was, he's been in supercars for a while. Um, Long time, yeah. And Terry's been at Walken Shores for a fair while. They both went overseas first. Terry was at um, Caterham, I think, Lotus, F1 team. Um, and, you know, a few of the mechanics sort of thing have been been in and out. But normally nowadays they're burned out after the, they've worked for me for a couple of years, so they want to go and find a career somewhere else, you know. They I, don't thought you, I thought you were going to say they're burned out after they've been to Walking Shores or somewhere else. Oh, no. I, come I, back. I, I trash them. They go there for a holiday. I was going to say, that's the holiday camp up the road in Clayton. <laughs> probably. And, and, and I think Mark Preston, he came to us as a, um, kid at university years and Monash University years ago. And uh, at the moment, he's, I'm not sure what he's doing racing wise, but he he was running the Tachita Formula E team for years um, that won the Formula E series for a few years. And then, and prior to that, he'd been at Arrows and Super Aguri, tech director at Super Aguri. And then uh, I think the last kid we had at, um, at uh, Aston Martin now in there. Um, uh, simulator department at Aston Martin. So, yeah, there's a few have sort of gone around the place. So I'm going to um, now get a little bit more. We've Sorry, I'm just going to get a little bit more specific with it now. Mike, that same pit lane I referred to has the blokes pulling on the, the onesies and the helmets and the fireproof shoes and getting behind the wheel. We look right back to 1998 when um, Adam Macro and Christian Jones, 1998, came 1-2 in the Australian Championship. And from then on, the, the Spectrum cars became, you know, the, one of the things to have against Van Diemen's, against Swift's, against, in more recent times, the, the Miguel's. Um, hark back to that 1998, again, younger version of all three of us uh, in this conversation at the moment. How hard were you working back then to get that result? Well, it sort of probably started a little bit before that because the 05 had been, we'd started that with Bridie and that sort of, we had a few dramas through the year, so it didn't finish well there and sort of had a lull year the next year. And then we got Bhagwana in on the program and he was the, Jason was the, I'd sort of say the first real driver that I'd had because all of a sudden everything made sense all of a sudden you know you knew that oh one mil of toe out that's really not that big a thing when you've got a guy like Barguana in the car and his feedback was so good that <clears throat> I probably haven't had anyone as good since um in that he could come in and do a track back and back then we had half hour practice sessions and he could come in and you'd make three changes in a session and he'd come in and tell you exactly what the car was doing and 
all of the different corners in different parts of the session. He had such good recollection, recollection, but he also knew what he wanted from the car. And that was such an important part for us back then because to help us improve the car. And then um, Adam sort of benefited from that because he did his first year sort of alongside Jason. And then and we sort of moved on with, with Adam after that. So, um, yeah, J- Jason was really good. And Adam, Adam was really good because he just, he was a, um, just a sponge, wanted lots of information. And his first two laps in a race were just fantastic. He'd won the race. Most of the time he'd won the race in the first two laps because he just got himself a break and then just cruised around after that. So, uh, and yeah, so, uh, and, and he just very rarely made mistakes. Adam, he was, he was just so good from that part of it. Um, so yeah, 98 was, was good and sort of a good start. It's, you sort of look back and think, oh, it's about when we should have really gone overseas to start the first time overseas because we had a pretty competitive package on a world level at that stage, um, but sort of didn't have the balls to do it back then. Now, the, the, the macro um, thing is, I guess, um, harks back to a bit of a family thing. When we had Tim on, Tim referred to um, Brian and yourself as, um, you know, influences in, in his time. So, obviously, um, with their dad driving Brian's cars and uh, then, you know, coming along, they start to, those boys started driving your cars. Is a, a fairly strong long-lasting connection with, with the with the macros sheets and and ball and operations isn't there oh i think there is you know i mean i used to my dad had dropped me at macros place even though sambo was racing my uncle's racing dad had dropped me at macros place and he'd take me out to Calder or he'd take me to sandown or something it was sort of he was more of the one to take you along and look after you sort of thing so and i worked on peter's cheetah for a little bit and that was when Adam was, you know, four years old, riding his scooter around the, the workshop sort of thing. So, yeah, when it and, you know, obviously followed what he was doing in karting, he was pretty successful. And um, we got him into a Formula V and then into the Formula Ford program and that. And then, then yeah, Tim, after that, I just came saying to Peter, I'm glad he didn't have three boys. Tracy and I would still be paying him off. So. <laughs> that wasn't how Tim recalled it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, yeah, and you know, even even to this day, like we're at Winton last Thursday, and Tim's looking after one of our cars on Thursday. He's sort of doing some driver coaching, and and as he runs his own team now, I've been working on him for ages to try to you know get rid of these things with wings on and come and work on a real race car. So we actually, happened <laughs> at, at Winton looking after one of our drivers on on Thursday. So yeah, relationship continues. <laughs> Now that, that same year I touched on two names. One was Adam Macro, obviously got to the got to the championship result. The other was Christian Jones. All of a sudden you've got a guy who's the son of a Formula One world champion uh driving your car. Um how much of a presence did Alan bring into your team or, or was he at arm's length of the whole thing? Um arm's length, pretty much, really. Um yeah, it was. Um... For those watching that aren't watching, because this is just an audio, just frowning at that the at the camera <laughs> at the moment, Mike is is not. Yeah, we got to get you to articulate what the frown is doing. The frowning, well, well, 
We'll talk more about macro, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I did send you an email saying, what you, is there stuff you didn't want to talk about? <laughs> we'll move on. Now, your brand, your your cars, your whatever, in a modern vernacular, it's a brand. But, it, you know, the, the manufactured cars that you've done are now racing each side of the Pacific, each side of the Atlantic. Um you're obviously doing these sorts of calls late into the night and have been doing for many, many years as your business grew. A um, couple of people that 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 touched or that landed in your business, I'm going to say Paul Zitti, um, a couple of people with some, to help you, I guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, with the commercialization of how you were running the show and came along. How... Um, how important have some of those sort of people that, that came along and, and for, whether it be a long stay or a short stay influenced the, the future of ball and racing developments? Ah, oh, huge. I mean, really, and and earlier on, it was probably Chris Jewell worked with us when we had Bridie running the car, a um, bit of the end of the Darren Hossack year. And when we ran with, with Bridie, he was a, I mean, he was, he sort of upped our game in a lot of ways, having him involved. I mean, I was, I haven't had a lot to do with him in the last few years, but I mean, back then he was years ahead of anyone else with his sponsorship proposals and all of that part of it, the the marketing side of it, he was, he was miles in front. So he helped us a lot there. And then, yeah, I think the Paul Zitti got involved with us because he rang up one day trying to buy a set of old Formula Ford tyres and he came down, had a look at the factory and ended up, then we were sort of starting at seven in the morning and working until midnight every night. And Paul had ended up dropping down after his day as work at Steelmark and start helping us assemble cars for, for a while. And then ended, then then, sort of, then left his job at Steelmark and came and worked for us. So he was with us for about 10 years and, you know, a lot more of a business background because that's not my thing, um, clearly. <laughs> he, he helped us. Uh, he helped us a lot. You know, I mean, got us a lot of deals that we wouldn't have got. He went to England and sort of organised us, organised our sort of excursion over there to start with with John Martin. He really sickly, it was him that got us the Rising Star contract with Cams and the um, the Ford Cart Stars contract with Ford. Uh, so, you know, he's been like a major player for all of those parts of our business for 10, 12 years. So it's fantastic. We touched on the, the international thing. John Martin went over to the UK and took your car and won over there on debut. Um, relationships with Mike Bailey, Bailey Racing and uh, then also Kevin Mills Racing, North America and, and Canada have now become great markets for your vehicles. And um, tell us about this this whole international business that you now, now run. I think we are lucky with... Um... We, we had a the, the Duratec had just come in in Australia and England all at the same time. And while they were a different horsepower engine and they were on slicks, it was pretty much the same car. So John Martin was looking at going overseas to race. So Paul had convinced him you need to buy another car, which is a good deal because it was three cars he bought off us in like two years or something. So um, so we went went uh, went with him over to England. Um, it was. Uh, you know, it was fantastic. He won on his debut race at Brands Hatch, which has stunned everybody. So that was, you know, that was a fantastic result. Um, sort of one of my one of my absolute highlights of the car racing 
journey. Um, it didn't, it was pretty hard to crack it. Um, and I'd have to say, like, for me, I'm a mechanic and most of the people I ended up as my agents were mechanics or they ran teams and it's probably not the right choice of people. I probably needed more sales orientated people. So we probably didn't sell as many cars. We didn't get the impact into England that we should have. Um, so sort of learned a bit from that. And when Honda started to produce a, a replacement engine for the Kent engine in America, um, we were approached by a couple of teams over there that were looking at our cars. And so um, same sort of short term was really good because we made Cape Motorsport our agent who were the number one team in America, junior team in America. And that was great. We sold, I don't know, like 18 cars in the first two years, took one car over, uh, went really well to start with, um, put it on pole and came second in the first race. Um, and then uh, won the first three full championships, which was really good with them. Um, but then um, they stopped running. Uh, so we sort of had to change what we're doing a little bit in America. But the agent I've got over there now is really good. So we've still, he just keeps selling cars at a great rate or not. So. Um, the the um the ongoing upkeep that's called a crash damage or uh, or or wearing out of cars that are doing lots and lots of laps around how is the 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 world of um, being a spare parts supplier to these uh, these race teams as well how does that play out in a I guess more in a commercial business sense is that a good part of the business uh, it is because when when we sold the cars originally to America the dollar was like at a dollar five or something and so we we're actually and we thought uh, we, we had a price point we had to get in at. And we were losing money the first year to sell the cars. I thought that's right. Like we could we could cop losing a bit of money on a couple of cars and ended up selling nine cars. So you know it probably took took us five years to get the money back on that investment. But but now it's it's really good. So the agent we've got over there's he carries a good good range of stock. But that is but you know I think post COVID. There's not many of our cars around the world that aren't racing, so it is a bit of a um, problem keeping up with the parts at the moment. And you know, like anywhere, it's engineering places are flat out busy, and it's hard to get people to to work and that. So, um, but we'll get through it. I do like the way the the furrowed brow disappeared now to a smile because we're selling spare parts on a regular yeah. basis there, Mike. <laughs> it's it's good to it's good to see and uh, have, have see a big smile on your face and. Uh, enjoying that aspect of it when it comes to mike Ballin and the and the the racing you've you've always had customers and you've had in in australia i can only speak for australia you've had some very loyal regular customers that have that have run spectrums for for quite some time regular teams that are keep coming back and 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 working with you plus you've always run a few cars yourself out of the out of your own workshop how have you found that tricky relationship of of being a manufacturer and racer as well as dis distributing your chassis amongst fellow racers, let's say? Uh, we've always been really open with what we do. Anything that I find that might be a performance advantage, I tell all of the customers straight away um, about that because it's sort of, you know, better that they all have it sort of thing. So, um and but it, it's uh, 
I mean, I try to be as open as we can. We share data amongst the teams, a couple of our teams. So it just sort of helps everybody get better um, from that side of it. So I think that's the probably the advantage you've got. <clears throat> and especially like a father and son type team, they can buy one of our cars and know that they've got access to the data of our fastest guy at the time, whereas buy one of the opposition cars, they're in teams and you only get as a privateer, you don't really get any of that information sort of. So it's sort of been one of our selling points to offer that. Is the the support that you can you can walk up and knock on the the, the Spectrum truck and, and get Mike Ball and himself to have a look at your laptop and, and help you work out what, what might be an issue? Uh, myself or one of the other guys, yeah. Yep, generally we can. Yeah, I mean, because I've got John Martin now, driver coaches and engineers with us and Andy Nethercoat's been with us for I don't know maybe 10 years now and he's he's fantastic with all of that too so yeah there's no shortage of people that can help with that from that side of it the one thing about formula ford racing is over the years there's been a lot of drivers come and go whether they've gone up or disappeared out of the sport where would you rate or who would you rate as amongst the the pinnacle of that list i, mean, I know you mentioned jason barguana before but there must have been others, whether they be in your teams or in other teams that uh, that stand out. I'd say I've been lucky. I've had a lot of to get to work for a lot of really good drivers over my time. So I have been lucky like that. So obviously Winterbottom was one of the best ones that we ran with. I mean, he was quick straight away. Um, Adam Macro, Tim Macro, he was unfortunate not to win the championship the year he ran. Um, Bargs was great. Uh, I ran Lounsey in the Formula Holden for a year, and that was he was clearly <laughs> a talent. Um, yeah, he was in the second class, so wasn't he in the yeah. silver, silver class rather the silver, than the silver star? Yeah. yeah. Um, but but uh, I think just the way he went about it and the way he'd been. I mean, obviously his dad being such a smart operator, Frank as well. I mean, taught Craig really well. And Craig was, Craig was, um, he could just put the helmet on. He was, you know, quadrupled his IQ. He was just such a smart guy and just had used so little of his brain to stay on the track sort of thing and so much to observe other things around him. He was, he was really good from that side of it. Um, who else? Uh, I think, uh, I mean, probably Scott Andrews, who won the championship in one of our cars in America. Uh, you know, he's he's he was really good. And and he's carved out himself a professional career these days too, uh, uh, being a bit of a journeyman, but still doing brilliant stuff, isn't he? Yeah, he has, yeah. Yeah, and I think in another Daniel Erickson who ran, he didn't really win anything here. He probably went, went to England um, and, like, he was probably on a third of the budget of the opposition when he was running with Mills in England, but he was racing Newgarden and guys like that and still still beating them a few times. So he's sort of, you know, he's, you know, I rate him as sort of one of the best guys I've worked with as well. That would lead to my next question. Uh, as you said, someone that didn't do well and then moved on, was there anyone you really thought they're, they're in the wrong game and but have proven you wrong? Oh, I probably wouldn't want to say that, would I? Can I just say Paul Zitti? <laughs> <laughs> but what a lovely bloke. Yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> There's the default answer under the bus with Ziddy. <laughs> and he, he makes a pretty good commentator, Paul Ziddy, doesn't he? Well, his two, his two famous quotes are, number one, he gets to the track and says, I've got just as much chance as any of you young guys of getting picked up by Roland Dane this weekend. And number two, if I drive the same lines as everybody else, I'll only go as fast as them. That's why I do what I do. So there is, there is two, two mottos that he works on at the tracks. Words, words to live by, words to absolutely, yep. Yep. absolutely live by. And, and enjoys it so much. Mike, do you get over to the UK and North America to see your cars race at all? I haven't been to no, I haven't been there for for ages. Um, I, uh, yeah, America was six, seven years probably since I've been to America. Um, the because we got a whole looks, no, I haven't <laughs> or England. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I do, but you just sort of get busy doing your own thing and don't Absolutely. get a chance to. They, I mean, we had a sold a few cars into New Zealand and we spent a lot of time in New Zealand for a couple of years. So I probably went over there 15 times um, for race meetings and that. So, but and test days and that, but haven't got to America, but soon. What part of race weekend when you're there with your team and other teams around you that are running your cars? What's your favourite part of the race race meeting? Uh, Saturday night you? at the pub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Winter favorite. State round is coming up. <laughs> yeah, it depends what lap times were, or it depends what the results are, doesn't it? It's what your favourite time. Uh, honestly, I think just seeing the seeing the guys get maximized themselves is probably the the best part you know if someone can if they can get the most out of themselves then that's that's a good part of it because that'll then lead to good results for us sort of thing but um yeah i just i like and all jokes with paul is that he does work to a high percentage of his talent sort of thing. And that's what you like to see people putting in as much effort as they can um, or so wherever that leads them, it leads them. But if they can operate at the highest level they can, then that's good. Well, this is, this has been good because now Paul city is used as a yardstick for formula Ford drivers and state series commentators as well. So uh, <laughs> he's, he's a, he's a clear measuring point for uh, anyone that's aspiring right. in motorsport. Right? Isn't well, he? I, hope you, I hope you're ready for when he's racing at the next one and he's commentating at the same time. Oh, crocky. Throw, and down to you and uh, in turn four, Paul Zitti. <laughs> <laughs> Love your work, Sydney. We'll come back to you later, Paul. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike, a, a, a couple of questions I always ask our guests. Um, first of all, who is your greatest rival? Who do you go to the track to beat? Is there someone, person, someone, thing? Is there anyone that you've gone, you know what, I've just got to beat these people or that person, whatever it might be? Well, I suppose at the moment it's Miguel, isn't it? So here and here in America anyway, they're, the, they're our main opposition. So um, so anyone who pulls on a French a French suit and goes racing for the weekend, you, you've got yeah. them in your sights? Yeah, I've got Cupid dolls for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever the, the dolls you step. No. Uh, no. Voodoo dolls. 
Voodoo Dolls, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like Sonic have been the most successful team here, so they're the they're the ones that you've got to aim at. So, um, uh, yeah, if you can, he'd be the biggest opposition here. Yeah. How does how do the Ballins and the Ridders get along? Uh, we don't have that many barbecues together, but it. I think there's a respect both ways, probably. There's not a, I mean, we're never going to be friends, I wouldn't have thought, but, um, um, but yeah, I mean, he does a great job with what he's doing, that's for sure. You do have a mutual goal to keep the category of Formula Ford alive and well, though, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Did what see has, some, the, sorry, guys. Uh, dropping of the championship for Formula Ford, how did, how did you react to that? Uh, it was actually ended up a good thing, hasn't it? Because it took us off the, when we're paying $2,500 entry fee and not many people could afford it and you're going to Darwin and you're going to Townsville and all of that. And it's great to be on those meetings, but it wasn't sustainable. So once Ford had pulled out their backing. So to go back to the state level meetings, it's just opened it up to so many more competitors. Um, yeah, and the so series, good thing. series is reflecting that as well now, isn't it? Yep. And and it's so hard now. There's, there's, you know, it's different to how it was when I started and like every year it gets different. There's another category introduced, isn't there? So, you know, you've got three divisions of supercars, two divisions of Porsches, now like two divisions of 86s and it's just so <laughs> many places for people to go that it's just just diluting it all. So, um, I, I mean, to me, Formula Ford is still the best training ground and uh, they're, they're adjustable. You've got to be so precise with your footwork, with your steering inputs and all of that stuff. They are still the best training for anyone wanting to go into, into supercars or whatever here. So, and even overseas to have the cars move around and that, um, it's but whether it's sort of, it's just not seen as that sort of so much anymore because you're not on TV and you haven't got a big slab sided doors that you can put stickers on. Um, but it's still, to me, it's still the place to be. In the Victorian State Series, you're on TV, Blendline TV, plenty of coverage at the front of the field. Uh, and I think that's actually a lot of the competitors have said that has helped them at, at, with the raising of the profile of it all. And it's certainly, yeah, it's definitely helped being on blend line and getting one V8 round this season, I think down in Tasmania, that's not so bad. And on with the TCRs at Winton, it's it's okay. But I, I don't think it's sustainable for the class to be on seven V8 rounds, that's for sure. It's just too, too expensive. So, Mike, we're getting very close to running out of time here with you. Um, I always ask our guests what is your number one standout most favorite thing the best time that you ever were at the racetrack what is the one thing in the front of your mind when someone says what's the best thing you've ever done at a racetrack mike ball and what's the best thing you've ever done at a racetrack uh i think it was probably brands hatch with john martin when he won the first race when we went to england that was like you know, unbelievable to to be there, to be at a track that you've 
watched on TV or read about for years and years and years as a kid growing up and then to actually take your car there and win on debut against the best Formula Ford guys. And, I mean, the thing that made that meeting special is that John hadn't been there before. It was the Grand Prix track, went no practice, straight out into qualifying uh, and to end up winning the last race of the weekend. And, you know, the guys in the field, one of them was one of the guys who beats Nick Tandy who ended up winning Le Mans as a works Porsche driver. So they weren't Gumbies, that's for sure. So, you know, that, that probably rates number one for me. Absolutely fantastic, Mike. I... um. I'm so glad you agreed to come on here. It was a few weeks ago and um, we had to find a, a hole in your schedule with uh, the busy, busy life that that you lead. And um, from Gaz and I, absolutely so thank you for being on the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. In fact, we might have to book a time in 12 months' time and we can start to delve into some of the personalities that that have raced your cars a bit closer but we'll we'll give you 12 months to think over that one and uh, and make a list of do's and don'ts and cans and can'ts for us yeah i'll come up with all the old funny stories of all the things that used to happen back in the old days <laughs> fantastic mike paul and thank you so much for joining us on the napa auto parts grassroots racing podcast thanks for having me thank you mike Well, there's a bit happening around the traps uh, over the last couple of weekends. The first thing we must mention is that their TA2 result was reversed. Jackson Rice ended up winning that because um, names just escaped me at the moment, was penalised for contact in the last race and he got dropped down the order a bit. So moving on, the Manubar Rally was the first round of the Queensland State Championship. Took four years to get this one off the ground because it was previously cancelled by flood, fire, and COVID. Uh, the the Manubar Rally win went to Glenn Brickman and Steve Richardson ahead of fellow Mitsubishi Evo Nine crew of Ian Menzies and Robert McGowan. Ryan Williams and Brad Jones, they're not the Brad Jones you're probably thinking of in their <laughs> Super Real Impressor WRX SDI, were classified third after they won the first six stages. On stage seven, they had an off-road moment, but managed to get back on track before the torrential rains hit the joint. That cost them around four and a half minutes to Brickman, but they still held the lead and with the last two stages cancelled, thought that they had to rally one. The event was stopped during the stage, that particular stage, due to weather and a rollover with road conditions severely affected. So the win went to actually Glenn Brickman because they did, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Estimated or derived times is the right word. Yep. And so um, that's why Brickman ended up with the win. So Targa Southwest has also been run and won with wins on all stages. Mark Cates and Bernie Webb were consummate victors on the 14th. Make smoking history Targa Southwest on March the 18th, held on the closed roads around Pemberton, three and a half hours south of Perth. The event was run as two rally spins of eight short stages, each with 30 competitors racing the clock over 72 kilometres. Second place went to Will White and Steph Estabauer in the Nissan GDR Nismo with Doug Tosterman and Dan Adams in their uh, Impreza STI Spec 3. It came home in third. Yeah, um, Deputy Four Hour was held their second round down at the Pheasant Wood Circuit. Well, Marulan, as probably some people would know it, the GT40 team of Bardi Kaspersky 
Cameron Lane, Peter Gatt and Chris Kapaski dished out another win after they won the opening round uh, just a couple of weeks beforehand. This time um, they finished uh, a lap ahead of their nearest competitor. McIntyre 900, the team of drivers Brett Kaminsky and Billy Geddes, along with navigators Corey Cooper, Dan McKenzie and Luke Camilleri won the inaugural McIntyre 900 off-road endurance event at St George on the 18th of March as well with the lure of $25,000 in prize money. That's nearly unheard of in <laughs> uh, Australian motorsport, isn't it? They had a near faultless run in the 36-degree heat aboard their Class 4 Chev small-block-powered Geisler trophy truck and covered eight laps of 115-kilometre course in just over 11 gruelling hours in the McIntyre 900. Yeah, just a little bit more on that. Um, obviously, uh, the drivers and navigators were switched around for the various laps, but there was a class there for what they called the, um, uh, again, the name escapes me, but single driver to do the event, Ironman. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, tired man. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Anyway, moving on, what uh, Josh and Matt Redhead did there, Mitsubishi of our five to win the final round of the White Line Suspensions Tarmac Rally Series at Sydney, Motor- Sydney Dragway on March 16. They held those on the Thursday night. After achieving problems with a very new car early in the series, the Redheads had an untroubled run and headed Phil Heafy and Luke McFarlane in their Evo 6. Both those Evos uh, highly developed and they were the winners of the five rounds with three to Redhead and two to Heafy. But it was Heafy's greater consistency that got him the series victory. March 18 and 19, the Tasmanian Circuit Racing Championships kicked off for another year with the first of their six rounds at the Pepsi Max Basketball Raceway. Rod Ender, Rod Bender and his Radical SR3 was the early pace setter in the sports and racing category as he qualified fastest. He paid the price of over-exuberance on more than one occasion and only won the second race as he overstepped the limits of adhesion at times. Phil Sutton in his Rolt R35 was more circumspect and ended the round on top with four wins and a second. I've got to say a, a Rolt R35 would have me a lot more circumspect. Hard to get parts for compared to a radical these days. State XL champion Jeremy Bennett had his hands full as Charlie Parker started his season on a high and was on his way to a clean sweep before he came unstuck in the final and finished fourth while Parker was the driver to beat. He didn't have it all his own way in the battles with Bennett, Josh Webster, Campbell Logan were very entertaining. Bennett was competitive enough to podium in every race with his consistency, saw him and Parker end up equal on points. Phil Ashland started his 2023 historic touring car campaign on a high in his Holden XU1. I parked the HQ, obviously, to one side. Yep, yeah, reigning he's, champion. Um, he's having a run in uh, historic touring cars. Yeah, Did a yeah. bit last year as well. Yeah, John Talbot and his Ford Mustang proved to be a thorn in Ashland's side at first as he topped qualifying and won the first two heats while Asrin battled gearbox issues in the third heat. Talbot's Mustang developed an engine miss while he was in the lead with two laps to go. Talbot didn't even finish the race or appear on the track again. Aslan went on to rack up a good round one points tally ahead of Warren Bryan in the Holden Monaro HQ GDS. Sports GTA saw last year's runner Bo Johnson in the Porsche GT3 start his bid to go one better with a solid round win which includes wins in all five races. His brother, Troy Johnson, Porsche GT3, also drove well to finish second. The battle for GTB honours was an entertaining one with Vlad Gala, Commodore Ute, 
and Stuart Brimswed in the BMW E30 trading places in almost every race with the round victory going to Gala in Sports GTC. Mick Williams in the Datsun 240Z had a clean sweep. It was all one-way traffic in improved production with Shane Bond, Datsun 1200 Coupe, dominated in a clean sweep of wins by healthy margins. Reigning champion Andrew Toth was looking to be likely HQ round winner after qualifying second and winning all four heats. However, a costly DNF in the points final gifted victory to Andrew Bird. Alex Williams in that magnificent Mazda RX-7 started the weekend well. He topped sports sedans qualifying and won the first heat by almost three seconds over John Douglas, who had recently taken delivery of a new Chevy Camaro, started to come on stronger and won the second heat. However, he failed to finish the next heat and was incited again, which allowed Williams to dominate. Reigning champion Formula V driver Jeremy Dyer and the Elfin Crusader and veteran Richard Gay in the BC Jabiru were head and shoulders above the pack. They traded places and wins with Gray slightly more consistent overall to win the round by four points. Uh, South Australian Motor Racing Championships got off to a cracking start with good feels and good racing across most of the classes at Mallar Motorsport Park on March 18. The Sporting Car Club of South Australia event had action that went from day into night and spectator entry was free. So good day out there if you were in the region of Mount Gawler, etc. Victorian Joel... Uh, oh, sorry, I'll just jump back, jump ahead of me. So although the current XL champion, Asher Johnson, drew first blood with victory in race one, Victorian Joel Johnson shattered him all the way. For the remaining two encounters, the order was reversed and that left Johnson on top for the round. A clean sweep of improved production wins went to Andy Sarandis in his Evo 8 as Max Merrick showed some pace in his new Nissan Silvia to keep the White Evo on us. Sean Jamison, we know well in Victoria and South Australia, and his Holden Commodore VY dominated the saloon car field. And although Scott Doran in his VT led the early laps in the final race, a DNF put him out of contention. John Goodacre chased Jamison home in the final, also in a VT. It was a, it was a two-way exchange between HQ drivers Darren Jenkins and Wayne King, with Jenkins able to grab top spot after three not-so-easy wins. That left King second, just ahead of the ever-present Lee Smith. It took a fairly easy day. It looked to be a fairly easy day for Daniel Westcott in Formula Vs, with Kalen Hill staying in the garage after a good showing in race one. Westcott was the top scorer with three wins, while Reese Rowland had a good showing on debut in the second race. Sports cars, New South Walesman Slade Osmond. The Porsche 911 GT3 took the honours with Joe Samolari in the Maserati GT4, assistant second. But company head of Emmanuel Payalis in the RSR. Two wins by Blake Miller in the Elton 630B meant he topped the historic points. Philip Lane in a Elfin 700 narrowly squeezed into second ahead of Keith Williamson in the Farrell Clubman. Now, Gaz, you couldn't get any further from grassroots racing, uh, uh, the Australian Grand Prix with Formula One. What a bizarre finish to that race. We won't <laughs> spend too much time on it, but wow, how to get a result out of F1. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it could have gone on. So lucky it was getting dark, or else yeah, it would have right. been lucky daylight saving to finish, really, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, they could have just <laughs> kept going, kept going with it, couldn't they? Um, Bathurst, 
Um, the the big Easter Fair is on up at Mount Panorama with the uh, the Speed Series on up there. You'll certainly be, I guess, you're probably packing your bags, ready to head up to the mountain uh, tomorrow, are you? Yes, I am actually. Um, uh, they'll be doing that tonight and tomorrow morning. Uh, the High Tech Oils Baffer six hour sixty odd entries, looking pretty s- slick at this stage. And really, about the only chance that grassroots racing races can actually get to race on Mount Panorama. If they don't race in the six hour, they've got um, they can be part of the sixty one XLs that are being there, or the twenty five odd Nissan Pulses that are also racing. We've got sprint races for GT, the new GT4 combination with production cars, as well as the uh, GT Championship World Challenge Australia having their opening sprint round there as well. So a lot to look forward to. Uh, the six-hour is class racing, production cars. What a lot of people say, oh, you know, that's what we all should be doing these days. Well, there's their chance. Go up and watch uh, production car racing at Mount Panorama. Yeah, it is. It's kind of one of those common keyboard warrior type of statements, isn't it, Gaz? To yep. uh, yeah, but well, that's what we should be doing. Well, get up there, support what uh, what the Shannon Speed Series are doing with uh, with production cars because uh, it really does. Um, it's a great weekend. You can pretty much trundle around the track unimpeded with um, you know get yourself a ticket and you can watch from here, there, or any anywhere. Um, there, there certainly will be fans there. It's not it's not the one thousand by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, certainly. A, a good place to go and enjoy Easter. The yeah, uh, long weekend. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Yeah, get up there and you can leisurely stroll up and leisurely, leisurely stroll back after uh, after racing on Sunday as well. Um, Victorian Motorsport lights back up on 22-23 of April at Winton Raceway for round two of the Victorian State Circuit Racing Championships by Triple Eight Home Loans. The uh, categories on uh, Formula Ford, so we'll uh, we'll see our guest tonight mike up there formula v so he'll be covering off two of his uh two of his chassis that'll be racing there improved production always uh, a great track for improved production racing at uh winton saloon cars um they've been awesome over the last couple of seasons hyundai xls mg and invited british cars sports cars that, that racing is just going from strength to strength in uh season 2023 so we're looking forward to seeing that. Sports sedans, we could get some support for sports sedans on the track up there. I know the numbers are down a little bit there. So anyone with a sports sedan in their shed, quick, get an entry in and get up to Winton. And the BMW E30s will join the State Series for the first time at uh, at Winton on 22-23 of April. And off in the distant future on the 26th, 27-28th of May is the Phillip Island Grand Prix Circuit, round three of the Victorian Series. Uh, yeah, the weekend before the Victorian State Championships, the uh, second round of the New South Wales State Championships takes place at City Motorsport Park. Uh, that's the weekend after Easter. So it's getting to be a busy time and most of the categories that uh, went to Winton will be there in big numbers for the Sydney event, no doubt. They don't have to travel as far and there'll probably be a couple of added categories on that meeting as well because it's getting to that stage now that um, you can't do every round. You have to be shuffled in and out because of the number of categories. Uh, Super Sports, which you've seen down at Phillip Island, they run exclusively on the Saturday. They have their qualifying and three races all done and dusted. So they can... Well worth getting to the track too as well, Gaz. That was some great racing those guys put on at Phillip Island. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get another category coming in to take their slot on the Sunday. So that's that's the sort of the way it's getting. And Mike, I think, uh, uh, alluded to the fact that we're now looking at a state series for um, 
Toyota 86s, uh, which is a second tier level for them. Uh, we've also, I think there's talk about maybe XLs uh, getting rounds with the New South Wales State Championship at a Motorsport Australia event. Uh, that could be happening. Pulses are also looking down that path as well. So it's just going to be a glut of categories running and it should be interesting. So, yeah, if you can't get to Bathurst and you're in the Sydney area or thereabouts, come out to Sydney Motorsport Park the following weekend. It'll be pretty good stuff. Gaz, question without notice. Um, Wakefield Park is back in the headlines. There's uh, a new deal being struck out there with new owners. Your thoughts? Yeah, fantastic. Steve Shelley, who um, owns the Marillion Circuit, uh, Pheasant Wood, they've purchased uh, the Wakefield Park circuit off Spinal Auto Club. They're going, uh, their first uh, line of attack will be to address the, um, let's say, the ones that have been um, handed or impeded by the fact that there's been noise limitations broken and in the past they're going to make peace with them, work out a policy where um, they can actually go racing again. If that all works out, then they have to go through all the legal stuff because it was a court ruling, so they've got to be able to run uh, more efficiently, maybe look at ways of deadening the noise around the, around the area there. And um, with any sort of luck, we could be up and running before the end of the year. It's a good development, isn't it, Gaz? It is fantastic. It, it, it's actually quite interesting some of the stuff that's coming out around now, and the the, the support that was, I guess, behind closed doors being thrown at that you know high level politicians to try and get things done. But I think it's a it's a good move for motorsport, and it's it's I guess it's like anything in business. You've you've got a great product. If you if it doesn't seem to be working under the current conditions, then move on and uh, give someone else a go. And I think the Bedell Auto Club have. Um, have done uh, a really good service to motorsport by, by sort of, they scratched their head for a long time trying to work it out. Yeah. Um, and let's see how uh, the Shelleys can do it. Well, I think what they'll do, they'll go, they'll bend over backwards to appease the people that are um, most uh, annoyed by it all, I guess. And if they can satisfy them, then they've satisfied everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Gaz, I reckon that's uh, pretty much it for um, episode number 22 of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast on your, what, 33rd, 34th birthday this year? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, still a way to go to retire. It's always been a very special birthday for you, Gary. On the on the week of Good Friday, your birthday is always a great day. <laughs> you know, well, actually, Friday on Mount Panorama will be a great Friday. Absolutely. Gaz, and... Big special thanks to Mike Borland for joining us tonight. A uh, um, great, a great story. You know, he is now the the Australian automotive manufacturing industry pretty much all by himself. So, yeah. uh, um, you know, we've had the the greats of GM and Ford and Toyota and and, and Chrysler and Mitsubishi hold the mantle for that over many years now. It's uh, Mike Borland all on his own. So, Gaz, thanks for your uh, great input as always. And it's good night from Daz. Yeah, and it's good night from Gaz. Catch you in the next one. Bye. You've just listened to another Network Car production. 